The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. There's a disturbing account from San Francisco that raises the question once again of systemic racism. We'll have constructive talk today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us today on The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. We're going to have a constructive talk today. We're going to talk through more difficult issues. Why? Because I'm looking for controversy? No. Because I'm trying to get people upset? No. But so we can pursue truth together. We can pursue harmony together. We can pursue unity together. We can pursue justice together. If we don't model it and lead it as followers of Jesus... How can we expect the world to do it? Michael Brown, welcome to the line of fire. Here's the number to call, 866-348-7884. That's 866-348-7884. I, I want to lay out my own position on race issues in America today for those just tuning in or those who haven't heard me comment on this. Then I want to talk about a recent report from San Francisco Take you into a book that deals a little bit with that, about the history of, of some laws in America, and then get your feedback. Get your own take based on your own life, your own education, your own experience. Fair enough? So let me lay things out plainly. And, and <laughs> let me make the full statement before you respond to it. I believe that race is being used today in a very divisive way to deepen division, to destroy the fabric of our society, that in many ways in our schools and in, in, in the media and politically, it's being used as a wedge issue to divide us rather than a way to call us to work together for the betterment of all people. I wholeheartedly differ with any education that makes one group of kids feel guilty or inferior or identifies one group as the victim group and the other group as, as the, uh, the, the perpetrator group. I completely oppose that. At the same time, I absolutely stand for a fair and honest telling of our history, the beautiful with the ugly, the good with the bad, let the whole story be told. I believe that America in many ways today, compared to the, much of the rest of the world, is not a racist country, all right? Now, let me make the whole statement, all right, that overall, especially when you compare us to, to other countries, overall, that today as we function, we are not a racist country and that there is great opportunity for people of all color and all background to succeed in America in, in virtually every area of the society. At the same time, because of our history, there are things that remain today that are unequal. Now, I do not believe that the goal is equal outcomes. That's not even a biblical goal. The goal is equal opportunity, and then people do with it as they please, be it in, in, in business, be it in salvation. I'm talking about just general principles. But there are inequities that remain because of our past system and because it put certain groups of people much further back, 
All right, so they're starting the race further back or they're starting the race with extra burdens on them because of which, as followers of Jesus, we should always be working to do what we can to level the playing field, all right? So those are my views. Do I believe America is systemically racist as in, in a conscious way, American laws, American institutions are trying to keep black Americans down or others down? No. Do I believe that there are vestiges of things in different systems that still need to be looked at and addressed? Yes. All right. So a lot of things have to do with terminology. A lot of things have to do with what we mean when we say a particular thing. And I'm, I'm not trying to get everybody mad at me. You know what I'm saying? Get people on the right, on the left, on this side and that side mad at me. I'm trying to assess things honestly. All right. So here's what brings this up. And it brought up another discussion with myself and a colleague where we, we often discuss race issues, me as a white brother, him as a black brother. Um, this has been widely reported, but here I'm reading from the Washington Post. A black couple says an appraiser lowballed them, so they, quote, whitewashed their home and say the value shot up. So in short, what happens is they move into San Francisco or they move into their house, right? They, they get it appraised. They know what it's worth. They put a lot of money into it, get it appraised again. Okay, they put even more money into it and then are expecting a certain appraisal and are shocked when they hear how low it is. So they decide to call another company. They remove anything in the house that's black, pictures of black family or artwork or anything like that, have a white couple call for the appraisal, say they own this house, put their own family pictures in there, and the appraisal went up $500,000, from like a million to a million and a half. Now you say, well, there are other things going on, other factors. I'll just share the report with you, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the article. Paul Austin said he felt good as the appraiser roamed his North California home last year, ticking off some of the $400,000 worth of improvements he and his wife had made to the property. The appraiser noticed the new fireplace. Austin told the state reparations tax for, task force in October, mentioned a room they'd added and complimented the view from the new deck. So it goes on, the whole story. Um... When, when, uh, when they did the appraisal, it came in a little under a million. And they were shocked because they knew what they paid for it. They knew they would put $400,000 of work into it. They'd expanded the living space substantially. And, you know, things are very expensive in, in San Francisco. You think a million-dollar house, a million and a half. Yeah, well, you don't get a whole lot for that in San Francisco. So if they put all that money into it, expanded it, they were expecting to see a lot more. So the new appraisal, when it was, quote, whitewashed, came in at $1.48 million. So even if it's a few months later, your real estate doesn't jump from a million to a million and a half in a few months. So according to the lawsuit, they believe the first appraiser gave them a lowball valuation because they're black. You say, ah, they're just imagining it. It's just somebody lowballed them. And it just so happened when they, quote, whitewashed the house that the appraisal came in high. Some will say that. Others will say, you know how common this is? You know, it's not the only time something like this has happened. When are you going to get it that, that people look at blacks, whites differently in America? This is a conversation to have, right? If we, if we don't have it, it someone's going to believe one way, someone's going to believe the other way, and we just sweep it under the rug. Well, let's, let's talk about it. And, and, and your own life experience, you might call in and say, man, 
we know similar things that have happened. Or someone else calling, I'm an appraiser, and under no circumstances would that factor in. You can weigh in, 866-34-TRUTH. So the, the appraiser and her company did not respond to the Washington Post, so we don't have their side of the story. Uh, Austin, this is the gentleman, told the State Reparations Task Force in October he believes the property was devalued, quote, because we are in a black neighborhood and the home belonged to a black family. Now, when an appraisal is done, you factor in other homes in the area, right? And then you get comps out in the immediate area. So let's just say you have a home that's worth $250,000. And and the homes in the community around you are all worth at least $250,000, some worth $350,000. And similar houses, so same size, same property in the surrounding uh, area, so outside of your immediate neighborhood, they're worth two seventy five, three hundred. Oh, well, your house will appraise, no problem. You 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 got two fifty plus. In other words, it's it's in a neighborhood that can sustain that value because generally speaking, let's say you're looking to buy the, your dream home. It's it's two hundred thousand dollars. It's five hundred thousand dollars. Two million dollars. Whatever it is, if it's a two million dollar home, you're not going to find it in a community where all the surrounding houses are worth one hundred fifty thousand. People don't build like that. So you factor in what the neighborhood as a whole, uh, the houses are worth there. You factor in comps, so what houses of similar uh, comparative structure size, what they're selling for, uh, newness, uh, enhancements, things like that, what they're selling for nearby. And you can say, hey, we can justify an appraisal. So we go through your house, and based on the house itself, it's worth 300000 The neighborhood... It's actually even more expensive houses, so that lifts yours up some. Just like if the neighborhood was way, way, way down, it's going to drag yours down because people don't want to spend that much money in a neighborhood like that. The fact is that the second appraisal comes back radically different. That's the big thing. In other words, if the neighborhood brought it down, black or white, Hispanic, Asian, doesn't matter, the neighborhood brought it down, well, the next appraisal would reflect that. So why the disparity? If I was this couple... If I was a black couple and this happened and we whitewashed the home and, 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 and it appraised with, a, with, with a, a white couple afterwards and they got this mess of appraisal, I'd be thinking the same thing they would. I'd be thinking something's not right here. According to the article, other black, homers, black homeowners have reported similar experiences. The value of a woman's Indiana home more than doubled between appraisals last year after she stripped it of all evidence that it was owned by a black person and a white family friend stood in as the homeowner. Earlier this year, a black family in Ohio removed family photos, artwork, and their six-year-old daughter's superhero pictures, replacing them with belongings their white neighbors offered up. The appraised value of their home went from 465000 to about 560000 A 2018 study by the Brookings Institution found that homes in black neighborhoods in U.S. metropolitan areas were undervalued by an average of 48000 amounting to $156 billion in losses. Now, were they undervalued? because the neighborhood had more crime, because of of lack of access to other uh, amenities, or simply because, well, if it's black, it's worth less. Just like it costs less to adopt a black baby than a white baby. So are, are there unconscious prejudices? Are there things built in a system that are still there? Are these just random examples that, that we don't have enough data on? These are the kind of questions we have to ask, because if this kind of stuff is still going on on a regular basis in America, that's, 
That's absolute injustice. And that's something that needs to be called out. If there's more to the stories than meets the eye, if there's something in a larger system that needs to be addressed, fine. Or if this is illusionary and just a, a, another, another attempt to divide, well, then what are the facts that we're missing? So that's why I want to talk about these things. Because, again, if we don't talk, either we sweep stuff under the rug or we end up fighting each other. We, 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 we end up just, again, if we don't talk about it, if we don't talk it through, either we sweep it under the rug or I believe the worst, you believe the worst, and, and we polarize, we end up fighting. So instead, we're going to have a constructive conversation. This is a safe place to do it. 866-348-7884. I'm going to go to the phones as soon as we come back. So now's a good time to get in. And then want to share an interesting perspective from a black friend. And then a book he recommended. I want to read a bit of that beginning of that book, The Color of Law by a Jewish scholar. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. When I sent that article from the Washington Post to my black-believing friend, again, we often interact and, and do our best to sharpen each other in our perspective and understanding. He was familiar with the story and wrote back to me, this is what CRTers mean about systemic racism. I think we've got this quote we can put up for you. This is what CRTers, so critical race theorists, theorists, mean about systemic racism, meaning racism in the systems of this nation. It's not a false narrative. How could a country that needed more than one civil rights bill not have racism in every part of its structure via people who believe that they are superior and need to preserve their place? In other words, the past racism is reflected in past laws and some of those laws or practices or customs or vestiges are still felt today. That's, that's his perspective, and that's what we are talking about. So, so listen, I'm going to go to the phones momentarily. Let me just say this. When I bring this up, I'm going to bring broad sides here, okay? I'm going to get attacked from both sides. One side thinking I'm just trying to be woke and prove something. The other side, as if we're divided, okay, as, as if they're sides. The other side, I'm not going far enough. So I am not trying to gain human favor here. I am not trying to impress anybody by being woke or being unwoke. I'm seeking to have a constructive, honest discussion where, where we can talk freely and we can differ freely and we can learn from each other. Fair enough? So if someone calls in and you're really upset with what they have to say, well, the same way I'm giving them space, I'm giving you space. So let your, let your thoughts be heard. And we'll start with Charles in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Charles is gone already. We'll, we'll tell you what, we'll stay in Raleigh. We'll stay in Raleigh and we'll go to Taft. Welcome to the line of fire. Thanks for calling. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hey. Love your show. Thank you. Um, I just want to say I appreciate the opportunity to provide constructive feedback and I'm coming from the point of view that I believe a lot of what you said is true. I agree with some of it. I don't from the simple fact that we're all humans, um, systemic or whatever. Those are systems that are put in place by human, but humans are governing them. So if we look at our political system, 
and we look at who's running the political systems, Mm-hmm. They're only as good as the people in those positions, and if those positions hold, I would say, personal. Um, if, if they're trying to, let's just say, an, an official wants to keep their job and they want to go with the status quo or their party affiliations, and they're not willing to break with those. In other words, they get caught up in the system. Mm-hmm. We're all human. We all have, you know, um, uh, a faults. Okay, we're not perfect. We're all growing. I think this whole thing has to – I don't think we'll ever solve this, but I think that it comes down to people wanting to do an honest self-assessment and realize that everybody has biases, regardless of your race, on, mm-hmm. on some points uh, or another. It's just whether or not we're willing to be honest with our own selves and say, hey, have I done a fair job of being fair? I think just in our everyday lives, we have biases that we form that out of habit, we think things out of habit because we're either conditioned to in the way we were growing up, Mm -hmm. but willing to have those conversations, willing to actually honestly do a self-assessment and say, hey, am I part of this? If if you want to look at uh, systemic racism, if you're a politician and you have a a political um, um, part in making things better or worse, you know, are you... Uh, um, administering that policy effectively, equitably, equitably to the pos- you know, the populace, or are you going with uh, what is status quo, and whether it be your party affiliation mm-hmm. to enact certain legislation that is yeah. you to yourself say you know is a little bit one sided or the other. But that comes down to every situation that we have in our life and in right, our jobs right. and in the systems that we work in, you know. Yeah. So it, it basically starts with us, within. You yeah, know, the systems so, are only as good as the people. Yeah, so, so to jump in on that, you know, a lot of times we do just go with the crowd, whether it's a religious belief or a practice or a mindset or how we respond to a political report. We're kind of in these echo chambers, and we're expected to all think the same way and do things the same way. And often we really don't step back and ask deeper questions and, and, and allow our views to be challenged. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's the biggest thing is, okay, well, interpersonally, what can I do to be godly, to, to pursue justice, to, to be fair, to be righteous? What can I do to work against discrimination wherever I see it in any way in, in the sphere in which I live? That's, that's the, the key thing. And it does, it does come down to us individually. Hey, hey thank you for, for calling in. Uh, let me just say this. I do not believe everything is race. I do not believe everything is a matter of race. I, I, I believe some in society are pushing it and making it that case. Just over, over the weekend doing some writing, chilling a little bit, watching a football game, and I was just watching players from different ethnicities and colors celebrating. I thought, you know, they're on the same team. And they're like, well, that was a good play, but he's white. Well, he, he's from Honolulu. Well, no, he's, he's black from Nigeria. Or, no, they're on the team together. And for the most part, we're working together for a common good. Where there are disparities, where there are issues, we should address them. And we should have conversations because we should care if there are inequities. If someone's using race to divide, that bothers me. I care about that. If there's a genuine inequity, I care about that as well. Uh, Let's go over to Anthony in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome to the line of fire. 
Hi, Dr. Brown. I just wanted to say I worked in uh, Africa for, I lived in Africa for two years. And from my perspective, I noticed that when I came back, it became clear to me that uh, black people in America have a, I hope this isn't offensive, it's just a statement of fact. It, black people in America have a very high standard of living compared to what I witnessed in Africa. And I think this country has afforded them and all people, not just black people, a very high, a great opportunity to be successful in life. And that doesn't mean there isn't racism and problems. Mm -hmm. But when I left Africa, there were people begging me to take uh, them home with me to back to America. And they were willing to leave their entire life behind, their families and their friends, to come to America. And uh, I just don't think that happens if, if there's any notion they're going to enter into a, a society that's systemically oppressed against them. We have immigrants mm -hmm. from all over the country, all yeah. over the world, coming, coming to this country, who are non-white, leaving their majority non-white countries to come here. And that's just... That just kind of refutes the notion that this society is set up to oppress so, them. Or, or yeah. yeah, so I, I, I agree that America today is not set up to oppress people of color, African Americans, or others. I agree that it is not set up to do that. I agree that, that most of the world would prefer living here because of the opportunities and freedoms. But two questions for you. Number one, uh, what does this have to do with the fact that people were enslaved, brought here against their will, and suffered under unjust policies for a couple plus centuries of our, of our history. In other words, if someone wants to come over freely today, you can't compare that to someone that was brought here as, as a slave. I mean, you don't want to make that comparison, correct? No, I'm not trying to say that. Yes, oh, there okay. were injustices. Yeah. There were injustices in this no, country. I, I just, no I just wanted, that. because someone could misunderstand that, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to say it. So here's the other question. Uh, so again, I agree that America as a whole is not set up today to oppress uh, one group or keep a group down. And, and two, I believe that America has amazing opportunities, which is why so many people are trying to come into our country rather than fleeing our country. But on average today, your, your average black child in America do you think that they have the exact same opportunity in life as your average black child, uh, your average white child? So as far as educational opportunities, as far as family background, heritage, and things like that, do you think they have the exact same, they start at the same uh, starting point, that the, the playing field they don't is completely start, equal? They don't start at the same starting point, but they the system is set up so everyone does have the state. I would actually argue that the system is set up almost against white people, when you consider affirmative action and looking at, you know, the statistics of who's receiving most of the welfare money. Again, I'm not trying to be offensive, but... No, I ask I for people to talk honestly. That's, you know... It, uh, but if you look at the way the system is set up, I would argue that it's actually set up to hamper white people. And, and again, that, that's part of that is because of the history of this country. And we did have an unfair advantage and it was at one point um, systemically oppressive. So I'm not arguing against those policies, but I'm looking, as you look at it today, yes, I do believe that all, all races have in this country approximately an equal chance of su succeeding according to the system yeah. we have. So, yeah, so the challenge, so I, I understand what, what you're saying, and then some of the, 
the firm of action, you're having complaints now from, from Asians, say, going into some of the best schools in America that they're being discriminated against because they're Asian and, and they're not black, so they're not getting the same opportunities. In other words, even though they're ahead here, here, and here, they're being discriminated against. So understand those concerns for sure. But let's just say Native Americans. Your average Native American is growing up in an environment that is so difficult, so oppressive, very, very hard to get out of. So you have a, a lot of black Americans that are still growing up in an environment today with greater poverty, with more broken homes, with less educational opportunities. And some of that ties back to the vestiges of the past. So my heart is, okay, well, how do we address that? It's not a current injustice, it's a current reality based on past injustices. What do we do together to try to level the playing field? And if you differ with Anthony said, as we gave him space to speak, you get space to speak. 866-34-TRUTH. Much more to come. Oh, and an update from Canada. You got to hear this. Thanks. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Friends, we are committed to solid conversations here where you have the right to offend me and I have the right to offend you by speaking what we understand with grace, with maturity, with love, with respect. But, hey, if, if you can't speak freely to me, and if you can't speak freely in this setting here, then, then where are we going to have these conversations, right? Where are we going to have these conversations? 866-34-TRUTH. I'm going to read you something quickly, then going straight back to the phones. First, yesterday I had on a guest from Canada talking about a horrific bill that was about to pass. He was hoping it would get a hearing in the Senate, and it, it passed unanimously. Basically, while we were talking, within minutes of that, it passed. And it, ban- it bans, it bans throughout Canada for all ages, so-called conversion therapy. And the way it breaks down is if you're a man with unwanted same-sex attraction and you want to get professional counseling or you want to go to a pastor to get help to, to work these things through and pray them through, illegal, illegal. So I, I wrote about it. Go to my website, AskDrBrown.org. You can read it. It's the latest article, AskDrBrown.org. You want to read it and share it. I've already been told there will be legal pushback. There, there will be cases brought to challenge this, but it is shocking. And the same thing could happen in America if we're not vigilant. So go to the website, askdrbrown.org and check out the article. All right, let me read this to you. This is from Richard Rothstein, Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, which a friend recommended to me yesterday. So I downloaded it just from the preface. I've only begun to get into the book. Some of you will be familiar with the contents. Richard Rothstein writes this in his preference preface when from 2014 to 2016 riots in places like Ferguson, Baltimore, Milwaukee, or Charlotte captured our attention. Most of us thought we knew how these segregated neighborhoods with their crime, violence, anger, and poverty came to be. We said they are de facto suggested that they result from private practices, not from law or government policy. De facto segregation, we tell ourselves, has various causes. When African-Americans move into a neighborhood like Ferguson, a few racially prejudiced white families decided to leave. And then as the number of black families grew, the neighborhood deteriorated and white flight followed. Real estate agents steered steered whites away from black neighborhoods and blacks away from white ones. 
Banks discriminated with redlining, refusing to give mortgages to African-Americans or extracting unusually severe terms for them with subprime loans. African-Americans haven't generally gotten the educations that would enable them to earn sufficient incomes to live in white suburbs. And as a result, many remain concentrated in urban neighborhoods. Besides, black families prefer to live with one another. Rothstein says, all this has some truth, but it remains a small part of the truth, submerged by a far more important one until the last quarter of the 20th century. Racially explicit policies of federal, state, and local government defined where whites and African-Americans should live. Today's residential segregation in the North, South, Midwest, and West is not the unintended consequence of individual choices and of otherwise well-meaning law or regulation, but of unhidden public policy that explicitly segregated every metropolitan area in the United States. The policy was so systematic and forceful that it affects... Its effects endure to the present time. Without our government's purposeful imposition of racial segregation, the other causes, private prejudice, white flight, real estate steering, bank redlining, income differences, and self-segregation, still would have existed, but with far less opportunity for expression. Segregation by intentional government action is not de facto, rather it is what, call, what courts call de jure, segregation by law and public policy. Is that true? Certainly the past, much of the past, it's been true. Are the vestiges of it still there? Or if the past set it in place, have we been able to fix it? It's conversations to have. Not guilt trip. Dr. Brown, do you feel guilty because you're white? The thoughts never once occurred to me. It's never once, <laughs> never once occurred to me any more than I should feel guilty for having eyes or a nose. It's, it's never, it doesn't exist in my universe, thoughts like that, to, to be perfectly candid with you. So I'm, don't, don't read something, oh, you're just trying to be woke to please people on the left. That thought is abhorrent to me. The first thought has never occurred to me. The second thought is abhorrent to me. I love Jesus, therefore I love justice. I love Jesus, therefore I love my neighbor. Therefore I want to talk about these things with my friends and with my neighbors. Fair enough? All right, uh, to the phone. Let's try to reconnect with Charles in Raleigh, North Carolina. Charles, do we have you this time? Yes, you do. How you doing, Dr. Brown? Good. Go ahead, please. Good. Uh, uh, well, I think you have been juicy smolleted. Uh, let's, let's look at some facts here. You, you indicated that there are people in this country that are trying to divide the races, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, I would, I would list among those groups the Washington Post, the Brookings Institute, and whatever reparations group this was, and those are the three sources you quoted for this uh, appraisal. Well, just, just, just hang on, Charles. I quoted Washington Post because a lot of people have access to it. It was reported in, right. in other publications. But okay. so, so let me just ask you something, Charles. You, do you believe in doing serious research? Uh, yes, I do. And I've done a lot of serious research both on uh, mortgages, uh, great, great. All right, so so uh, and uh, race relations. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I want you to weigh in in a second, but you do okay. realize that you have to go and check primary sources. In other words, something's reported by so and so. Now you have to check the primary right. source. The reason I got a PhD in Semitic languages is to do that. So uh, I I would just say, aside from the insulting Jesse Smollett thing, which is really beneath you if you want to come across seriously, and the kind of dialogue we want to have here, and aside from impugning me because I happen to quote something that the Washington Post published, go to the primary sources. Let's discuss those. You, you basically shoot yourself in the foot and make yourself, yourself out to sound like I, I once quoted something. 
on CNN to say, even CNN is saying this. And people said, I'm not following you anymore because you quote CNN. It's, it's almost what you sound like. So let's just talk facts and get past the, the unnecessary insults because that, that just degrades your position. And let's, let's talk well, what I, you know, where you differ, okay? Okay. Well, first of all, I didn't mean it as an insult. It's those three organizations are invested in dividing us by race. But that aside— In, in, your, uh, in, your, in your opinion, the Jesse Smollett well, thing was okay. not meant as an insult? That was not meant no, as an no, insult? No, I, I think those—I those, think no. I just meant that those three organizations are, have some investment in that. But to get to the bottom line, we talk about—this was kind of— the indication from them was that this was sort of a redlining of these particular homeowners and, and reducing their equity and their value. Yep, based on them being the, black. The, that was the accusation. Right, right. Right. Okay, the problem with that theory is it doesn't matter what the particular home. The redlining is about an entire neighborhood. So unless the entire neighborhood went from black to white, whitewashing one particular home just doesn't make any sense from the standpoint of what any lender or any appraiser or any adjuster would be involved in doing. Mm-hmm. I, it, 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 the whole thing really seems to me to be a false flag from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just, I just I don't believe the story is what I'm saying. And I Got think it. okay, that, that's fair enough. Fair enough. That's and, and again, this look at look at how many times people on the left have gone out of their way to paint nooses, to paint swastikas to hang a noose in a NASCAR garage, to do all these things, and almost without exception, Dr. Brown, almost without exception, they are shown to be false flags. Let me, let me ask you and, this, Charles. I, we have lists of maybe 300 examples of that in LGBT issues of, of these false yes. flags. Yes. Was it ever determined who hung the noose with, with the, in the NASCAR garage? I think it was actually determined it wasn't even a noose. It was just a, a, a rope that was used for something else. It wasn't right, even right. a noose. Okay, because I didn't want to give it the impression that it was – Right, it was reported yeah. as a noose. Right. I, I didn't want to give right. the impression that someone on the left hung a noose and then reported it as a racist thing. Basically, the question was whether it was actually a noose or not. So it was the way it was reported. Right, and okay. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that whoever reported it, because 98% of the media is to the left, was, was someone on the left. Right, that that could well be. That that could well yeah. be. Hey, hey listen, yeah. if you if you did not mean your opening comments in an insulting way, I apologize for hearing them that way. Uh, no, I, I I love your show. I just I, I was trying to be funny with the juicy Smollett thing. Ah, uh, got it, got it. Okay, well, yeah. I I, ap- I apologize for thinking it was intended as an insult. Uh, now, my my point is, like, if you got is- if you got something to say, let's try to get to that because otherwise, you know, so many people that would hear what you have to say it won't hear it. But anyway, all, all good. We're we're clear. So from from your viewpoint, something's fishy with the story, and very fishy. Just simply from a real estate standpoint. I mean, again, if you're going to, it doesn't matter what the particular homeowner is. It only matters what the neighborhood is. And if this was a black homeowner in a neighborhood that was eighty percent white, twenty percent black, it, it doesn't. Ma- that's what I mean. Well, the I, th- I think they is- said though that it was a mainly black neighborhood and they felt the house was undervalued because of that. But your point would be, so if a white person showed it, that wouldn't affect it. That wouldn't get a higher appraisal. Right, but, but weren't you, weren't you comparing the same house to the same house? So it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, so it, it, if, if, if it was a black neighborhood, when the five, when the million dollar appraisal came in, then I'm assuming it was still a black neighborhood. When the Exactly. Five. So you're saying, right. So the white person showing it in your view would, would not affect that overall. Hey, Charles, I appreciate you calling in and glad we, we got past the, 
uh, misunderstanding uh, of the humor at the beginning. So that's that's perspective from Charles. Phone lines are open, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go over to Michelle in Winston-Salem. Welcome to the line of fire. Thanks for having me on, Dr. Brown. You're welcome. Um, I actually missed the whole part about the redlining, and so I won't comment on that, but I was just listening to the last caller that um, just returned from Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, I disagree with him as far as uh, what the policies or if white people are being hampered by today's policies. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's black people being hampered because we're um, not on, but a lot of people are out here that are receiving too many governmental benefits, and it's hampering them as far as moving forward with life. Um, Do you mean the welfare me, system and the way it's been set up yes, has, exactly. has been intentionally set up to keep black Americans down? Exactly. And a lot mm-hmm. of policies that have come in since the 60s and 70s have basically ruined, to me, the African-American families. Um, if 100 years after slavery, we were doing so much better than we were, you know, 60 years after civil rights movement. So to me, these policies, a lot of these policies are hurting us. And as far as the education, you brought that up while you still were speaking. It's, to me, it's cultural, um, you know, not having a two-parent household. Um, it's about zip code. A lot of these Democrats don't want black students venturing out and finding better education. A lot of them are stuck in the schools that they are. So, so in other words, and just because we got a break, let, let me just put this together. The policies from the Democrats that are supposedly helping black people are just a continuation of previous Democrat policies to keep blacks down. And even the incentive to have children out of wedlock to get more welfare contributes to this. So that is a perspective many others have shared as well. Hey, Michelle, thank you for calling in. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. I want to go right back to the phones to get in as many calls as I can We'll go to Christopher in Fort Worth, Texas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. How are you, Dr. Brown? Doing well. Thank you, Christopher. Hey, I'm a person of color, uh, middle class, 38 years old, conservative. Uh, I, I grew up pretty tough, just as, as, a, as a quick summary. Um, I think the issue, main issue surrounding the the community of people of color. I hate to say black because I, I don't even like that term. Period. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's an identity crisis going on, and um, we're plagued by low self worth. And a lot of proponents of things that contribute to that would be um, the constant, constant portraying of black people in a negative light in so many different ways. You know, it's always surrounded by poverty, crime, uh, victimhood, you know, and I follow a lot of conservative channels, and uh, including yours, and a lot of times when, when the issue of race comes up, it's almost as if the black community is used as a, a marketing demographic uh, for the left. And Could, could you explain I, that, what you mean by that? 
a marketing dem- demographic. Like it's it's a uh, like a tool used by them to to pretty much create this idea or this narrative that it's it's just so bad in the black community, and they're just targeted by so many different things. So much so that uh, you know it's it's a narrative that's you, got you know it, the got narrative. It. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's far into my way of thinking, but but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Right, and um, and and that's and that's the tool. It's, it's in Hollywood. It's in the movies. It's in the TV shows. It's constantly using that idea to promote, you know, a narrative. And that narrative, I believe, is a narrative that they use in order to pretty much present themselves as the as the uh, savior of the black community on the on the far left or the left. You know, I wouldn't say. Got it. Democrat uh-huh. spirit. You got it. I mean? Got it. Yeah. So, but uh, I, it's an identity crisis in in the community, and and that's because you know a lot of people are proud of their heritage. They have this you know, rich history and this, that, and the other. There's not many. It's not. It's, there's not much you can really stand on as a person of color in the U.S. to be proud of. You know, it's it's that that plays a part that contributes to low self worth in terms of a sense of history. Right. In the sense of history right. and, and mm-hmm. period, because a lot of negativity is surrounding that term in, in every single media outlet that I'm exposed to on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but I think that, that the media is the perpetrator. They, they're also contributing to these stereotypes of black people as a whole. We're all, always constantly identified as a collective. We're never looked at as an individual. And typically when I interact with people of different races, you know, there's always a stereotype that I would have to, you know, either show that I'm not a part of that stereotype or combat it in some type of way and say, hey, well, this is not me that you're assuming that I I am. So so this is still still part of your ongoing experience that, that you feel you're stereotyped. Growing up, growing up, yeah, growing up. I grew up hard. I grew up hard, and 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 it's hard. And I say, and it's hard because you, you know, of course, and you know, we I hear all the arguments, uh, you know, between whites and blacks, and 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 we hear, you know, well, it's the crime, it's the, you know, the the broken homes. We hear all that, you know, we hear all that, and they say, well, you know, if we can just, you know, start, you know. Fathers stay in the home, or if you could just stop doing this, that, and the other. It's like everybody's an expert, but mm-hmm. they never really go into the, the the mentality of the people in this country. You know, people of color in this country. You can say, well, there there's opportunities out there, and yes, there are opportunities, but the opportunity can be, you know, taken advantage of depending on your mentality going into it. Yeah, you know, I, like, I, I'm, can, tr- I'm trying to find something now as, as we're speaking. I'm actually uh, having, having to look this up on my phone, but there, there's a, a book uh, that I got years ago and started to read with interest. Mm-hmm. Let me just see if I can find it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's definitely of relevance to our discussion here. I, th- I thought it was called Brainwashed. I, I may have it wrong. But it, it was it was an African American uh, who had a major advertising company, and talked about wrong ways of thinking. And every every one of us, from whatever our background, ethnicity, history, we have some right ways of thinking. We have some wrong ways of thinking. And uh, to the extent that we know who we are in God, and we have a sense of confidence and purpose and calling, a, a lot of things are overcome. But there are. There are a lot of narratives out there, a lot of things that are being pushed 
how, how do we live these things out? Big question. Hey, something to continue to talk about, but thank you. Thank you for weighing in. I, I appreciate it. And again, I, I'm not looking for a right or wrong outcome here. I'm looking for a discussion perspective. Uh, we go to Angelo. No, not Angelo. Let's go to Marie in Gastonia, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hey. How are you? <laughs> just fine. What's on your mind, um, Marie? Well, I just, me and my husband, we go to work around this time every day. So we usually put um, uh, this radio station on and um, it's, uh, we like it because um, me and him uh, come from very different backgrounds uh, ah. and, you know, similar in some ways. So we like to have, um, you know, discussions and I just um, wanted to, I don't know, call and just put my own discussion in there. Do and it. I really do agree with uh, some of the people who have been calling um, saying that uh, if, you know, like the media and the politicians that are pretty much like using people of color to kind of like um, sell this narrative, like, you know, we want to save you. Like, you guys really need this help. You guys are like, you know, in poverty, you know, kind of just like victimizing them. And I just... Um, as a Christian, um, I know that the world right now, like, it's not, like, going to get any better. It's just going to keep, you know, going down the tubes until, you know, Jesus comes back. Are you sure and, Are you uh, sure about that? Are you totally sure the Bible teaches that? Well, I know that in the Bible it says that um, before Christ comes, um, like, it mentions, like... Um, like the birth pangs will get, you know, um, more um, closer right. together, meaning that, you know, as, you know, like the closer we get to it, you know, some things are, I don't, I don't, that's not to say. Well, here, that, let, let me know. just, let me just jump in and, and say this. Three things. One, the scripture, there's a lot of debate in terms of exactly how to understand future prophecy, but for sure the Bible talks about great calamity. It also talks about great outpouring, great harvest. Uh, but in fact, I'll just say two things. The second thing is, if if everyone had the mentality things are only going to get worse before Jesus comes, well, if they had the mentality generation back, generation back, generation back, generation back, we'd never do anything. We'd never have any improvement. What if the Lord doesn't come for 200 years and the next 100 years is the greatest in American history and then there's an apostasy? Or what if there's outpouring and and apostasy at the same time taking place? So that's, I, I just don't want to buy into the pessimism. I mean, why, why well, are we... No, no, I, I wasn't trying to be pessimistic. I was actually going to say that that's not to say that, like, like the world is in complete despair right now. And that it's just okay. like we don't have any hope. Because we do have hope. Um, and, you know, I think everyone says that um, Christianity is losing its followers, but Christianity, like, actually is gaining more followers. We have hope, and, you know, there's a lot of, good resources out there and, you know, a lot of good messages of the gospel to help bring people to Jesus. And um, I guess what I was trying to say is, like, you know, it's just we're going to get closer to that point. Yeah, well, here again, know? here's the thing. that the, the attitude should always be one of faith and confidence in God, even if the whole world falls apart around us, right? So ultimately, the attitude should be, that, that we believe God and we are overcomers. 
So in the midst of it, we have a positive attitude, right? But I, I just jumped in also because we're at the end of the show, and I wanted to make sure I said a few things. Thank you for, for weighing in. Maybe next time we'll hear from your, your husband. Uh, but, but thank you. Thank you for both listening. So I, I just want to put some things together. There are many people in America today, be it individually, be it institutionally, there are many people in America who want to deepen our divisions over race. I oppose that. There are many in our society who want to make everything a matter of race. I oppose that. I believe we must come together across racial and ethnic boundaries. We must listen to each other and we must do our best to give equal opportunity and level playing field for all. Some cases it's easier done than others, but that's the goal. Let me repeat, I stand against those who constantly try to divide us over race. I stand against those who make everything into a matter of race. I stand with those who say, especially as followers of Jesus, let us listen to one another, let us compare our life experiences, let us separate fact from fiction, and let us do our best to work towards equality and justice, meaning equal playing field, not equal outcome, not some socialist communist utopia, but an even playing field for all. Let's work together to make that a reality as much as we can, be it in our neighborhood, be it in our immediate family, be it in our church circles, be it in our business. Let's do what we can because that's what we should do as followers of Jesus who love justice and who love our neighbor. Another program powered by the Truth Network.